ask each of you to give your name and your affiliation. We don't all know each other. It's lockdown. It's another Zoom call. And I'm going to start with Anthony. Hi, I'm Anthony Costa. I'm a professor of global health. But this time, it's filled with some of the top scientists in the country analysing the strategy for tackling coronavirus. That is the first item on the agenda, the business of getting out of the lockdown. But unlike the official Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE, no government ministers are listening. There's a longer-term potential for a classic second wave of the sort we saw, uh, say, in the 1918 Spanish flu. This is the independent SAGE, and for two months they've been live-streaming their advice to anyone who'll tune in. As most of England eases out of lockdown, what do these experts make of the government's plans? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the former chief scientist Sir David King on his concerns about the pandemic strategy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We predicted that a virus of this kind would emerge somewhere in the world before 2030, just looking at the probabilities, and that if it emerged anywhere in the world, it would take only three months to be in every country in the world because of air travel. That's Sir David King. He was the chief scientific advisor to the UK government between 2000 and 2007. In that time, he had to deal with several health emergencies – including foot-and-mouth disease, the 2003 SARS outbreak, and the spread of bovine TB. So I think I was alert immediately. I don't suppose you predicted how it would end, too. No, but it's clear that it wasn't going to be very easy to deal with. This is rather like when the Christian missionaries arrived in Hawaii and they had the normal bout of flu But the Hawaiians had no defences, no antibodies against that flu. And of course, a large number of them were wiped out. And Hawaii is a very isolated country at that point in time without air travel and so on. And it really decimated the country the first time the flu virus spread around the islands there. The population of Hawaii with Hawaiians has probably barely recovered since that time. We now know that the official Scientific Advisory Group on Emergencies, or SAGE, held its first meeting about coronavirus on the 22nd of January in an anonymous-looking government office moments from Westminster Abbey. The Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, 
and the chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, who've now become household names, were joined by 16 of the country's top scientists. Two days earlier, China had confirmed that the virus could spread from human to human. SAGE would be at the centre of Whitehall's response to the crisis. But for months, the official group was shrouded in secrecy. It wasn't until the 5th of May that the public was even told who was on the panel. It wasn't always like that. When I was chief scientific advisor, I had to deal with a much lesser crisis, but it was a major crisis, the foot and mouth disease epidemic, possibly the biggest foot and mouth disease epidemic the world has seen. This year, the bucolic sights and sounds of Britain in the springtime have been punctuated by the signs of slaughter and death. I was giving the Prime Minister my advice. He said I should get on with it. More than 750 individual outbreaks have led the government to order the slaughter of more than a quarter of a million animals. Prince Charles spoke today of the desperation felt by farmers coping with foot and mouth disease, real difficulties which he said could end in suicide. But at the same time, I was also going into the public domain, television and radio, explaining exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. Now, I think that has been missing. That's really interesting. So the transparency was a real issue for you. Why has that posed a problem? Was the sage that you worked with, was that very different? Was it always completely transparent? I'm talking about the period between 2000 and end of 2007, and I never used the acronym SAGE. That was my successor who had that brilliant idea. So I just had the rather prosaic foot-and-mouth disease expert committee. Does what it says Uh, on the tin, yes. Yeah. So, yes, the Prime Minister knew that whatever advice I was giving him, I was putting into the public domain, and he understood that this is the way you have to get the public's trust in what we're doing. I did have to deal with quite a few emergencies. A widespread cull of badgers is being urged to prevent the spread of TB in cattle. Badgers could be virtually eradicated in parts of Britain, but the government's chief scientist says it is necessary. It's very clear to me that if we want to halt the spread of TB in cattle, action is really required soon. I'm saying this because I I think... If you get government ministers saying, and prime ministers saying, we are simply following the science advice, but if that advice isn't in the public domain, how can the public know that that is correct? So I I think this is critically important. And really, we learned the lesson from the BSE crisis, which was another livestock crisis in Britain, which came to an end in about 1998-99. The government is investigating a possible loophole in the BSE controls that could allow some suspect beef into the food chain. The government's new controls mean that the carcasses of all cattle over 30 months old are destroyed. And the Phillips Commission report into the BSE crisis was absolutely critical. That report was the result of an inquiry into the mishandling by the government and its scientific advisers of the BSE crisis. That report says the science advisers in government have to have an independent voice. They have to be able to put their advice to government into the public domain. And I certainly acted in that way throughout my period of time. And I'm afraid that the coalition government really sat on that process in the sense that 
everyone receiving a request from the media, you're required to go through number 10. That means that by the time we got to this crisis in 2020, the practice was no longer there. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they're so keen to keep it quite secretive? That completely beats me. I I mean, the, the reason given was that the people on SAGE would feel as if they were under attack if their names were known. Was that something you ever worried about? No, and nor did I ever feel I had to worry about it. Now, of course, I wasn't faced with an epidemic of this kind. And I'm not suggesting that this isn't a much more demanding situation. But for me, that means even more that we need to have transparency in the advisory process. Do you know how SAGE, how the current committee, do you know how they view your independent SAGE? Are they pleased you've set it up? Or I hope they do see it as constructive. There are four people from the behavioural subgroup of SAGE who have now joined the independent SAGE group as a, they're now a subgroup of independent SAGE. I think there are quite a few people on SAGE who fully understand the importance of transparency and independence. I understand you wanted to set this body up for it to be more transparent so that people would be more aware of the issues. As far as you were concerned, was there a fundamental problem with sage as it existed? I mean, did you feel like the science that was coming out of it wasn't quite up to scratch or or did you feel that politics was impinging on the science? It seemed to me that maybe politics was impinging on sage. In other words, let me say to you, it it is perfectly feasible. I'm not criticising a government for a government to say, listen, guys, other countries are going into lockdown. We should avoid going into lockdown because it'll hammer our economy. So whatever advice you give, can you give it in such a way that we can avoid going into lockdown? Now, I think if that was the framework under which they were working, it would be, first of all, good to know if that was the case. But secondly, it's quite a constraint on what sort of advice you can give. And it may be that this is the origin of the use of the phrase herd immunity. And you might remember the rhetoric around that. The turning point in government came with the publication from Imperial College indicating that this would result quite possibly in a death rate over 200,000 people. If we had gone into lockdown one week earlier, there would have been a quarter of the number of deaths compared with what we have today. Really? If we'd have gone two weeks ahead, of course, it would have been a considerably smaller loss of lives. Was that the final straw? Was that what made you want to set up Independence Age? Yes. That and the fact that nobody knew what the science advice was. I mean, interestingly, during our first public meeting... The first series of SAGE minutes were published. There were redactions and there are still two SAGE minutes that have never been published. But nevertheless, they were published and the membership of SAGE was published with some redactions. It's really interesting that you say one of your fears about SAGE was that politics was impinging on their work. You've been the chief scientific advisor. Tell me, what's that like? What's the relationship with the Prime Minister like when you're the chief scientific advisor? What, what, how does it work? I mean, that, that is a very, very big question. So let me try and answer it in this way. As chief scientific advisor, 
I would set up a group of experts to advise me. And the modeling was conducted in real time while the epidemic was spreading. And the advice had to be given very quickly because we could see one day could save a lot of animals from having to be culled. And so when I distilled down what I understood should be done, I didn't say, now, Prime Minister, this is a possibility or that is a possibility. I would come forward directly with clear policy advice. So this is what we have to do. But I always made it clear, I'm giving you advice, but you are making the policy decision. And throughout that whole period, from when Blair asked me to lead on it to the end of the foot and mouth disease epidemic, he never disagreed with the advice I was giving. Did you ever felt any kind of pressure to alter your advice? Or was there a sense that you knew what politically would be more expedient? No, I think I had to understand the politics. And in that case, I knew the Prime Minister had said you can use the Ministry of Defence. If I tell you that the foot and mouth disease epidemic, to bring that under control, involved the logistics from the Ministry of Defence to be as heavy as it was during the first Middle East War. The first Gulf War. During the, the Gulf War, yeah. So it was a massive exercise for the military. And it was very, very important that whatever advice I gave was practical, that it could be carried through. people in England who tested positive for coronavirus at the end of May could not be contacted by the new NHS test and trace system. Baroness Dido Harding, the woman in charge of it, says the system is functioning, but it's not yet a gold standard service. The pandemic is actually speeding up. Trust me, no excuse for contact tracing. If any country is saying contact tracing is difficult, it is a lame excuse. Thanks to our progress, we can now go further and safely ease the lockdown in England. If we do get a second spike, particularly in the autumn, do we have any idea yet, scientifically, of whether it would be as bad as the first or possibly worse? I mean, what what are you predicting? I'd say it could be as bad as the first. If we have completely uh, left the lockdown behind... I can see no reason why it shouldn't be as bad as the first. The only thing is, perhaps we have all learned some lessons and there are some good behaviours in practice. Everybody should be wearing face masks when in the public domain, but particularly indoors. I think we all know 97% of super spreading events around the whole world have happened in enclosed spaces. Do you feel confident about pubs reopening, pubs and bars and restaurants? No, I don't. I I feel that's a a serious problem. And I would strongly urge the government to back away from that decision. I think it is very strange that outdoor swimming pools have not been opened. And at, at the same time, we're saying pubs indoors can be opened. I think it's a recipe for real disaster. So it is, I'm afraid, very likely that this is going to end in a rapid spread, a rise in the R number above one. And yet we're getting the message at the moment from government that we can begin to undo the strict measures of lockdown. It's a very difficult message to get across. But the 
quicker we can get out of this pandemic now, the more easily we will all recover and our economy will recover more quickly as well. There's no conflict between our advice, which is be careful before you remove the the lockdown until you have a test and trace system fully operative. You should not be undoing the lockdown. And the reason for saying that is we could be out of lockdown much more quickly than if we stagger on opening things up too soon. And it, it is too soon if we don't have a fully functioning find, test, trace, isolate and support system. The R number is the number of people who each infected person passes the virus on to. Anything above one is considered dangerous territory. In Leicester, infections have skyrocketed and in recent days were at 10 times the UK average. Now, the city is undergoing the first localised lockdown in the country. It's because I believe that people have been more relaxed in the more deprived areas of Leicester There are very crowded areas, and as soon as people are leaving their houses, they're meeting up in the streets and on the pavements and going indoors in other places, and the whole thing becomes relaxed and away we go. And I'm afraid that's just a a reflection on what will happen in other parts of the country. Hello, I'm Asma Mayer, and if you enjoy the Stories of Our Times podcast, make a mental note to catch my breakfast programme with Stig Abel on Times Radio. Wherever you are in the world, join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. Listen to our morning show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and via our Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 6am to 10am on Times Radio. Know your times. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And is it, I mean, is it the Prime Minister's leadership that you think is to blame? Or is it the Health Secretary? Is it the cabinet at large? I think in a situation like this, there's one person who stands above all the others, and that's the prime minister. 
And so, yes, I think uh, it is the Prime Minister who is responsible. In his speech this morning, for the first time, he has acknowledged that errors have been made. And uh, that's got to be welcomed. But frankly, have been a lot of misstatements on the way. Uh, a world-beating app was going to be provided, a world-beating test and trace system, etc. at a time when other countries in the world already had a test and trace system. Now, much of the media picks up on some of these comments, and so it's not really understood just how many failures have been made. Hi, my name is Massa Talifa, and I'm just here to explain why I have created a GoFundMe page in the link below. I cannot accept that we live in a country where the laws only apply to those of us who don't have powerful connections. Law graduate Massa Talifa is one of three people in the past couple of weeks who's trying to launch a prosecution against Dominic Cummings for breaching lockdown. It's been more than a month since Cummings held a Downing Street press conference denying that he's done anything wrong. But the anger has lingered. He seems to behave as if he is above the law. And I'm asking for your help through this campaign to bring Dominic Cummings to justice. In a non-political but sort of scientific way, what did you make of the Dominic Cummings affair and how much do you think that of an impact that's had on people's behavior now i have to say i thought it was incredible when you're running a pandemic of this kind or a challenge a risk to the country of this kind trust in the leadership is absolutely essential it's really awful because at the same time we had the dutch prime minister who his mother was in a care home but the government had decided people should not visit care homes because they might be infected. The prime minister did not visit his mother before she died in a care home. I think he did the right thing. He really retained the trust of his people in what they were doing to manage this epidemic. When you see all those pictures in the newspapers now of the beaches packed and you know emergency incidents being declared because too many people are coming out at the same time. Do you think there is a direct line between the Cummings affair and people's attitude to, to breaking out now? Oh, yes, I, I think there is a direct line. The moral authority of the government was lost at that point. And then there was a further factor, which, of course, is the, the prime minister and his ministers saying... Uh, we're going to release these aspects of the lockdown going forward in time. Now, as I've said, I think there are some measures that needed to be released, and in particular using outdoors and two-meter rule. But to reduce the two meters to one meter, uh, just foolhardy. We know from analyses that that increases the chances of people getting the disease from other people by a factor between two and ten. So really, not smart. In other words, the advice seemed to be, we're coming out of lockdown, guys. We've managed it. And we were doing it far, far earlier than any other country when you look at the number of new infected cases per day. So I think that it was a, a lot of distracted people in government. 
the Prime Minister, it's said, didn't attend the first five COBRA meetings called to discuss the pandemic. So I think the eye wasn't on the ball. I don't think they really understood the challenge of this epidemic, and nor did they set out a plan or a strategy for action. I just don't quite understand it. I still can't see what the strategy is, frankly. That's interesting. You still don't think there is a coherent strategy? Well, you know, it's not a strategy to say on July the 4th you can go into pubs unless you set preconditions. In other words, why didn't we open the pubs three, four weeks ago? And the answer was because there were too many newly infected people going down every day. Well, I think there are far too many today. That's why we went into lockdown when we were at this point. So I, I think the question is, what would be the newly infected rate that would justify opening pubs and so on? Uh, that, that's just completely missing from the planning. So it, it, I have to say, it appears to me to be random. Now, Independent Sage is trying to set out a clear strategy, but our strategy doesn't work, and nor does anyone's strategy work, if you have a dysfunctional test and trace system. I mean, how, how will that work come the autumn? You've already said there's likely to be a second wave then anyway, but obviously this isn't the sort of country where you can spend much time outside mid-autumn. What will happen? I believe the government should be focused on getting us to zero virus in this country before the autumn. I think that should be the focus. That's really interesting because that hasn't, that hasn't even been mooted by the government so far. No, no, I know. Do you think it should have been? We only have to manage this for a relatively short period of time to get to that point if we manage it properly. But I'm afraid the first thing is we would need to abandon the broken test, trace and isolate system and we need to engage GPs, we need to engage the healthcare system fully in the test, trace, isolate system. We need that process to be up and running. We could get it up and running in a short period of time, three, four days, and then we can really push ourselves out of this. This message is so critically important. You've talked a lot about government failures in the handling of this crisis. Are you worried? You know, I mean, it's very hard for us to know how much SAGE has done. You're, you know, you're right, there isn't much transparency. Are you worried that the scientists and, and science will end up being blamed at the end of it? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think when, when the Prime Minister and the ministers were so keen continually to say we're following the science advice, I just felt that scientists are being set up. And so I would say... Look at the independent SAGE. The scientists on SAGE are the same sort of people as we've got on independent SAGE. And see what we're saying on independent SAGE. And you will see what the science advice is and what is happening. Has the relationship between scientists and government, has that changed in a fairly fundamental way? Uh, from, from the era when you were, when you were advising? Oh, well, well, here's the interesting thing. I think that when I came into government, I don't think the government was particularly focused on science at all. And then the foot and mouth disease epidemic came along and I went to my first COBRA meeting and I was the only member of that COBRA meeting who was able to say, Prime Minister, this is what should be done. If we do this within two days, we can turn 
exponential growth into exponential decay and we can get ourselves out of this. And it was at that point that the government almost instantly understood what science delivery could be like. The government really needs to see what science can deliver in real time in order to understand the real power, not only of science, but of British science. I mean, British science is exceptionally strong. We derive it from our long history, and uh, that is still there. Do you think this has been a moment, though? You know, you're right, we do have a long history of science, but, um, you know, as has been pointed out over, over the decades, we also have these two cultures where politics and you know, the arts and much of sort of public discourse doesn't really understand science. And that, that's been quite exposed in this crisis. It's very, very important to have people who can communicate science. Scientists are used to living in their own little world. In the government process, you need another form of capability, which is communicating and communicating without letting go of the severity of the science, of the complications, but nevertheless communicating without using private terminology that scientists only understand. Once you do that, you know you're dealing with intelligent people. They can pick it up and, uh, and you can take it along. I mean, in that respect, I know we've already spoken about Dominic Cummings and you've been very critical of, of his behaviour, but in that respect, has he been quite useful in trying to make government more plugged in with science, you know, that's certainly one of the things he talks about. I'm not sure that I can manage myself in answering that question. Um, he, he has zero training in science. I have no evidence uh, that he has an understanding of what science is, how it works. So, no, I think one of the confusions in the system was that Dominic Cummings was a member of SAGE, and attended meetings and certainly spoke at meetings, from what I understand. And what this means is that you've got, in addition to the chief scientific advisor telling the prime minister what the advice is from his committee, you have his own senior advisor advising him on what the committee has said. I don't think that's right at all. I think it's perfectly fine for the chief scientific advisor to be talking to the prime minister if he wants to have Cummings there at the time, that's absolutely fine. But he should have a clear link in to the prime minister. I think you managed yourself admirably. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask, there's been news in the last few days from China of a new swine flu. What do you make of that? This is the kind of thing that happens on a fairly frequent basis. You might remember the avian flu epidemic, which again, if that virus in the avian flu epidemic, if that became a human-to-human -human virus, it would have been very dangerous. But for the same reasons, we had no antibodies against the infection. Now, I've got two things to say about that. The first is the swine flu that has been discovered is the same sort of category as that, uh, as that avian flu. What is still needed is that transformation, that chance mutation of that virus to becoming compatible with living in a human body. And so it's not obvious that that is going to become a human-to-human -human virus. Now, at the time of the avian flu pandemic, I had a discussion with the Prime Minister and he said, so how could we manage this if it was to arrive here? And I said, well, the best thing to do 
would be to get the pharmaceutical companies to develop a, a vaccine against the avian flu form as it is and include that in the flu jab that we all get uh, when winter's approaching. And that means I'm quite sure that the number of deaths in Britain, if that had mutated into a human-to-human -human virus, would have been much less. So that's what you can do if you have sort of advanced knowledge of this thing possibly going to happen in the future. You said uh, an organisation you were a member of had predicted that there would be a big global pandemic like this coming. Is this going to be the new normal? I mean, is, is this a one-off event or are we expecting pandemics like this to reoccur? One of the foresight programmes, the biggest that I ran, was on infectious diseases. The report was made in 2006 and we had 340 experts from around the world on that programme working for two and a half years from 30 different countries. And what we said was, it's highly likely that a pandemic of this kind would arise within the next, uh, we said that the next 24 years before 2030. And so it's not a real surprise to anyone who was on that group that this has happened. What is awful is that all the preparations for that put in place in Britain disappeared over the period from 2010 to 2020. Do you think there'll be other pandemics coming? Yes. For exactly the same reason. If we have a new virus emerging from an animal and that makes the jump through a chance mutation into becoming a human virus and we have no defences against it, then this is what does happen into the future and perhaps next time we'll be better prepared at least in this country, than we were this time. We got in touch with Downing Street and asked them about Sir David King's criticisms. In response, a government spokesperson said, we are moving forward in a cautious way to open up the economy. We've set out the steps businesses should take to ensure they are COVID secure, and we've been very clear that individuals should continue to follow social distancing measures. The government will keep all measures under constant review and will not hesitate to apply the handbrake or reverse measures if needed. On the problems with the test and trace system, they said, NHS test and trace is playing a vital role in continuing to control the virus. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sir David King. The producers were Poppy Damon, Will Rowe and James Shield. The executive producer is Leo Hornack. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Have a good weekend. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.